Welcome to the season finale of Capture Q. Today's guest is Joel Backen, an author, a filmmaker, and a law professor at UBC. His most recent book, The New Corporation, is a sequel to his 2003 book, The Corporation, which during an era of anti-globalization protests and growing distrust of publicly traded companies, spawned the highly influential film that same year, The Corporation. Today, we discuss both the book and his recent documentary, The New Corporation, which he made with Jennifer Abbott, and we talk about why the duo believed that a sequel was necessary after all these years. So I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you after the holidays. In the meantime, you can visit Capture Q on Instagram, you can find us on our website at captureq.com, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever else you're listening right now. Enjoy the show. So welcome to the show, Joel. Thank, Thank you, you for uh, for speaking with me. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So for people who aren't familiar with your work and what you do, do you want to just give a little bit of a background, what you do? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm a, I'm a law professor by trade, and in that context, I became interested in the law that governs and constitutes corporations. And that was back in the late 1990s. I started to uh, write a book about that, an academic book. But shortly after I began, I met Mark Akbar, who was the director of the first corporation film at a social event. And we started talking and he was saying he was thinking of making a film around the same issues that I was dealing with. And, oh, and uh, yeah, so he said, well, why don't we collaborate on that? And one thing led to another. Before I knew it, I was making a film. I was <laughs> writing a book that was for a broader audience than just an academic audience. Mm -hmm. And um, since then, I've written another book in this space called Childhood Under Siege, How Big Business mm -hmm. Targets Children. And then most recently, the new corporation book and film. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a question I actually have. So maybe we could just for background talk a little bit about Childhood Under Siege on, on what that's about. Yeah. One of the things that interested me most when I was doing the corporation film was the research that took me in the direction of how corporations targeted children. This seemed particularly sort of vicious and, and malicious and nasty that the sort of most vulnerable people among us who were just forming in terms of their thoughts and beliefs and, mm -hmm. and their biology, their, their bodies were, were being targeted explicitly for marketing and targeted perhaps unintentionally, but more vulnerable to environmental toxins, targeted mm -hmm. as labor for child labor, targeted in all these different ways. And there was a, um, a statement uh, by Nelson Mandela to the effect that, you know, the soul of a society is determined by how it treats its children. And that really mm -hmm. stuck with me and became a kind of guiding principle for writing a book that looked at all these different elements, looked at marketing, looked at the unique vulnerabilities of children to environmental toxins, looked at privatization of schooling, mm -hmm. uh, looked at child labor. So sort of all these different issues where corporations and children uh, connected and not in good ways. So we have here the new corporation 20 years later, is it? It was mm -hmm. 2003 when the first film Yeah, close to 20 years later, yeah. 18, 17. <laughs> yeah, that film, it really shaped how I've formed my politics in a way. I've read, you know, Naomi Klein, Noam Chomsky here. You've got a nice quote on the on the cover from. So now you guys are, you're talking about the shift. In, in these 17 years or 18 years, we've seen corporations kind of recognize that they have a reputation for abusing human rights, X, Y, and Z, you can name it. But then they've taken on the corporate social responsibility. So you want to talk a little bit about yeah, yeah, the, why the second film was necessary? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. It was almost the day after the first film came out and the book came out, I started to get calls from corporate organizations, you know, CEO groups and no chartered accounting groups and PR groups. And they wanted me to come and speak to their meetings. And I was like, wait a minute, I just called you guys psychopaths. Why do you want me to come and speak at your meetings? And, awesome. and what I found out when I got to those meetings is the line was usually something like, Thank you, Joel. You know, thanks for pointing out 
how we haven't been so great over the last little while, how mm -hmm. we've been, you know, wrecking the environment and doing all these bad things. We really needed to hear that. And we're also hearing it from all the marchers in the streets as part of the anti-globalization movement, the Battle of Seattle, all yeah. that stuff about the WTO. So there's all this stuff that's going on that is telling us that we need to up our game. Mm -hmm. So corporations uh, recognized that they needed to up their game. And the sort of line that, that they would tell me is, you know, we know that we haven't been great and now we're going to be better. Like mm -hmm. we are going to become new corporations. We are going to move social responsibility from the periphery to the core of our operations. We're going to reposition ourselves as solutions rather than the problem. 100% uh, recycling, 100% renewables. We're going to do all that stuff and uh, support good causes and, and everything else. And, and there's no question that there was a change uh, around, the, around 2005, 2004, where you really saw a major shift in mm -hmm. how corporations talk. You'd go to their websites and it would, you'd think by accident you'd landed on an NGO website. You know, yeah. that they didn't care about money anymore. They just cared about saving the world. Um, good, yeah. And so what I argue in this book is that while this, this may look good on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, how, how can you say it's bad that a corporation's trying to produce less waste? Mm -hmm. um, the larger game that they're playing, and, and this is what my research and what my argument reveal in both the book and film, is there's a kind of um, equation. And that is, we're going to become good now. But because we're good, we can run your schools. We can run your water systems. We don't need to be regulated. We can self-regulate mm -hmm. because now you can trust us. Mm -hmm. And and so there is this simultaneous thing going on where corporations are, in fact, trying to be more responsible and be better. But the quid pro quo for that is that we no longer challenge their power. Exactly. We don't use democratic regulations to regulate their power. We hand over more of the public good to let them make profit off of. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is what's been going on for the last 20 years. And that's what I document in the book and film. Mm -hmm. Many people my age and, and most younger, they're very anti-capitalist, this big rising sentiment. But, you know, in my years, I've come across people who, who are looking at this and going, well, you don't really want socialism. And then there are some arguments of, of what's happened in the past. So when I think about it, you know, hearing both sides, so you hear everything that corporations have done wrong from, you know, BP to Nike. There's just a litany, I'm sure, in your book. But when I think about capitalism and the things that I, that I like about it, that I think are, are good is I love restaurants. So if you have a restaurant, you all make money. You can source well. You, you know, you have good produce, so you're feeding positive agriculture systems. To me, it seems the problem is when now you have, you know, some investors come in and they say, well, we have shareholders and we have to cut labor costs we have to actually source from you know cisco instead of from the local farmer is there not a system where we could then just take out that really dangerous element of, of capitalism is is that possible or i think there are a lot of distinctions that we have to draw a lot of things that get mushed together that shouldn't one is uh non-publicly traded companies and publicly traded companies so uh a small business a restaurant or even uh, a fairly larger business that isn't publicly traded the uh, the owners of that business are not beholden to shareholders. They don't have a fiduciary duty to shareholders. They actually have the capacity to make decisions about paying their workers more or about sourcing uh, responsibly or whatever. Mm -hmm. And when you add to that the possibility of having regulations that require them to do that, so they all do that, and so there's a level playing field. Yeah. And so those who want to do that don't get penalized by having to have higher prices and being undersold by those who don't do that. Um, you know, you do have real possibilities when you're dealing with non-publicly traded companies. Yes. So the second thing that the second distinction we need to make is a distinction between capitalism and a market system. Okay. They are not the same. Uh, you can have a a uh, society that is democratic, that has a private sector, that has markets, that even has corporations, 
um, but that sees itself not as primarily about simply generating capital. Mm-hmm. I mean, what capitalism says is that we're in a society where the ultimate goal, the thing that everything else has to be uh, uh, sort of uh, part of, is the production of capital. That's mm-hmm. what the word capitalism means. It's the ism. And so, you know, I would prefer to talk about democratism or even socialism, because how can we say no to the social good being the ism we're talking about? So why not have that as the ism or public goodism or common goodism and say, what is the best way to get there? Well, markets are going to be part of that. I don't want every restaurant to be owned by the state. That's not a very fun place to live. Um, But I also don't want every restaurant to be owned by McDonald's and Burger King. And so how do we create a society that balances the importance of democratic politics with the absolute need to have democratic politics, to have some measure of social equality, Mm -hmm. to have a thriving private sector, but also to ensure that you have a thriving public sector so that people don't fall through the cracks, so that everybody gets the education they need to be productive members of society and good democratic citizens, so that they get the health care they need, so nobody starves, so that, you know, and there's a measure of social solidarity because you don't have these radical inequalities. Mm -hmm. You still have thriving private businesses, and as I say, you even have corporations, but Mm -hmm. you also have a um, a very uh, well-thought-out, science-driven and ethics-driven regulatory system Mm -hmm. to ensure that everybody's playing by the same rules, to ensure that, you know, business A can't undercut business B by paying its workers less or whatever. And, And so that seems to me to be a pretty good society. And that is kind of what we were trying to do over the last century until 1980, Mm -hmm. When you had the sort of rise of neoliberalism and a rejection of that whole idea. Mm -hmm. But so, so can we have a society where we recognize the complexity of making all these trade-offs and balances where we don't embrace either the fundamentalism of public ownership of everything, communism, Mm -hmm. or the fundamentalism of private ownership of everything, Mm -hmm. neoliberal capitalism. And we understand that what we need is a system that reflects the complexity of who we are as human beings. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, we have self-interest, but we also have compassion. We're also empathetic, but we also, you know, like to have our good wine and our nice food. And, you know, we're this, we're this weird complexity of sort of selfish interest, uh, consumer desire and concern for our fellow citizens and our kids and our families Mm -hmm. and our friends and all of that. Let's have a society that actually reflects the complexity of who we are as human beings. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's all I'm asking for. And the labels that are usually used to define that are uh, social democracy or democratic socialism. And people don't know really the difference. Well, they may know, but it's not talked about enough that Bernie Sanders isn't trying to be Joseph Stalin. (laughs) No. And and, I mean, I think that the right has done a very good job of trying to equate those two things. Mm -hmm. But that's like equating um, somebody who is in favor of markets with some kind of... um, fascistic authoritarian capitalist with with the person um who says we don't need democracy all we need is a private property regime and a state to enforce it well that's that's ridiculous and and so let's let's be a little bit realistic a little bit Mm -hmm. nuanced a little bit less you know screaming ideological Yeah. Um, and yeah. On that note, I was actually listening to an interview of Erin Brockovich. So she's she's got a new book and doing the rounds. Something she said that struck me that I thought was really important because, you know, I'm hearing left and right arguments all the time and, and good ones on both sides, for sure. She said, I'm from an area that's Republican. I have Republican family members. You know, we're very conservative in, in the way that, that we live and, and choose to live and want to live. But it shouldn't be partisan. It shouldn't be this left or right issue to have clean water and to not want to see your kids get poisoned and to want to challenge the company that did that and hold them to account. Why does that have to be a left wing issue? You know, when we get away from all of this, the left or the right, um, we just realize we're humans and 
Yeah. You know, you can be mad at a corporation whether you're left or right. Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of people on the right are mad at corporations. Yeah. A lot of what drove a lot of what drove Donald Trump's um, successes were people who felt that they had been sold out by Democratic administrations mm -hmm. who had entered free trade deals yeah. and had given corporations carte blanche to devastate uh, their their communities. Yeah. Yeah. And when you speak to somebody who who cares about these issues and they go, well, Joe Biden's not the answer. You know, Kamala Harris is not the answer. They feel very disenfranchised knowing that they, they got a shot at Bernie twice. And that was basically taken away from them. So then you do have Trump. You have Obama, Trump voters. So there's, you mm -hmm. know, if we're not addressing these issues that are in the film and the book, it's, um, yeah, you, you get that result. I mean, I think that we always have to think about aspiration rather than immediate realization. And and I think that um, as we show in the film and as I talk about in the book, I think what, what the Bernie Sanders um, campaign showed, and Noam Chomsky says this in the film, it was a great success. It showed that there's an appetite, uh, a broad appetite and a broad-based appetite for um, a kind of... Um, uh, policy that that does in fact uh, see a role for public institutions in serving essential human needs like clean water, like climate, uh, mm -hmm. like schools, and and for containing corporate power. I mean that 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 is a victory, and I think we have to you know look beyond. Uh, just the federal administration in the United States, look at what's happening mm -hmm. as we do in the film at, in municipalities, at state levels, in local politics. I think that there is uh, what, what has recently happened in the uh, Black Lives Matters uh, movement, in the climate movement. There's a huge mass mobilization of humanistic values that is happening at the same time that we're seeing the Trumps and, and all of that kind of, of stuff, the rise of the right. But, but the, the, the positive story is that I, I think, and especially among youth, we are seeing this, this mobilization of, of humanistic values, of values about, uh, saving the planet. And I'm very, I'm very encouraged by it. And what we're also seeing, um, among progressive people that we haven't seen before, and this is what Sanders represents, that we haven't seen for a while, at least, you know, since the 1970s, is a, a renewed interest in large P politics, in gaining mm. public office. And, yeah. and I think that is what Sanders, that, that's going to be his lasting legacy, is people like AOC and people mm. like Mayor Lumumba in Jackson, Mississippi, and all of these um, progressive politicians, uh, not necessarily sitting in the president's office but mm. but certainly as as part of the game now in a way that they haven't been for a long time i've heard the argument that identity politics and and the culture wars both in canada and the u.s have actually been encouraged by corporate america because rather than say you know let's divide our our income it's saying we'll put a black square on our instagram or oh we'll uh We'll hire a few more minority representatives, and, and it's nothing off their shoulders. And they've basically encouraged that that debate to take over this um, economic debate. That's that's a little bit more about labor rights. Is that something that you've thought about, or, or you know? Yeah, I, I've thought about it a lot. I write about it in the book. Um, awesome. I I think that um, there has been a long. Um, uh, struggle among progressive people, and I think often a very productive one, um, between and among um, identity politics and what we might call class politics, class mm -hmm. issues. Exactly. And uh, you have those struggles within uh, movements. You had them uh, within uh, African-American movements, between uh, Du Bois, for example, the, the socialist black sociologist who uh, was very much uh, in debate with Thurgood Marshall at the NAACP, who was uh, much more on the civil rights side of things. Uh, Martin Luther King himself was very committed to class politics, um, mm -hmm. but some interpretations of him are more, uh, emphasize more the civil rights kind of approach. Yeah. And 
I, I think the point is these aren't separate things. Um, the same thing has happened in the women's movement and feminism with socialist mm -hmm. feminism versus radical yeah. feminism. <laughs> and it's happened, um, it, it, it's happened in every movement because the truth is that both things are happening at once. Mm -hmm. That class and, uh, gender and sex and, and, uh, LGBTQT and, and race and migrant status all of those things are are interrelated you mm -hmm. you can't sort of separate them out and the argument i make in the book is that what corporations have done and it's not just in terms of identity politics it's in terms of populist right politics too corporations are programmed to construct cultural and ideological uh discourse that ensures that they are not seen as part of the problem yeah that the, that what they pay their wages or what they do to the environment isn't the problem yeah. and and so you have for example right-wing populist movements blaming migrants blaming welfare recipients instead of blaming corporations mm -hmm. and you have you know everybody's throwing blame around you have identity politics saying you know it's it's about sort of attitudes of racism rather than about uh, economic and class structures of racism mm -hmm. because that is the kind of thing that's pushed out by companies but i don't believe in any of these movements themselves um those kinds of ideas have any traction i think people within the women's movement or people within uh the movements against racism are are very much aware of the economic dimensions. You just have to look as we do in the film and as I do in the book at the way that the recent uh, eruption of uh, a struggle for justice in the wake of uh, George Floyd's brutal police killing, that was, that was totally intertwined with economic issues, with issues about the police getting funding while housing uh, was getting no funding, while hospitals were being defunded. It was very much a race-slash-class kind of movement. And um, and so that's what we talk about in the film and the book. But on, on, on the populist right side, uh, populist uh, right side of, of the issue, I also show in the book how um, it's been the 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 big business assault on the social state over the last 40 years uh under both democrat and republican administrations in the u.s and all kinds of administrations elsewhere in the world um that has pushed this agenda of rolling back taxes rolling back regulation rolling mm -hmm. back public provision rolling back uh, requirements for good wages mm -hmm. has pushed an agenda that has created uh, vast inequalities of race slash uh, economic slash gender um, and and then um, kind of walks out the back door as you know right wing populists blame the elites in Washington or mm -hmm. you know liberals or or the feminist movement or whatever so it 's been this this incredible um, uh, movement to make class politics invisible. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And and I think it's it's been largely successful in some domains, but I don't think it's that successful on the ground within those movements. I guess is my point. Interesting. Yeah. The example I want to bring up is I was looking um, in Vancouver where we were speaking today. Is uh, we have West Bank Corporation and they are they are doing phenomenally well. Yes, they make some beautiful buildings, but they have also, you know, decimated some communities. And I saw a job for, it was 30 grand for an office admin position. So I found this argument, you know, it's, it seems to be so out of touch that you have to go to school to get your bachelor's or to get whatever degree. And now you're in debt if your parents didn't pay for it. Um, and you come out and you're being paid 30 grand where, you know, you couldn't even afford a one bedroom apartment in Vancouver for that. How do they fight for, you know, their rights to be paid a living wage? Um, yeah. In that scenario. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, as we as we show in the film and as I talk about in the book in the 1950s, the average uh, CEO remuneration was 20 times that of the lowest paid worker in a company. 
Um, today, it's somewhere around 300 times on average, but it's very common, uh, and Jamie Dimon would be an example of this at J.P. Morgan Chase, for a CEO to make a thousand times that of the lowest paid worker. And when you add in stock options and everything else, it's, it's even more. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, and that's endemic of a much broader, uh, just absolute chasm in terms of the gap between rich and and poor, the destruction of the middle class. I think, you know, what has to be recognized is that this didn't happen because the people who run corporations are bad and greedy people. I mean, that may be part of it, but this happened because of public policy changes. This happened because... uh, of labor standards that were rolled back so that workers could be paid less. Mm -hmm. Um, This happened because of labor laws that were rolled back so it would become more difficult, if not impossible, to form a union and to make Mm -hmm. a union work effectively. This happened because public provision was gutted so that people would uh, get their $30,000 salary and have to pay for health care and maybe have to pay to send their kid to a charter school and maybe have to pay for water and, and that all of these things as they're privatized, the cost of them go up. These are all public policy decisions that are made by governments that allow corporations to do what they do and do it more. Corporations are always, they're geared to, as I argue in the book and film and the first, mm-hmm. they're geared always, publicly traded companies have to make as much for their shareholders as they can. That's their legal imperative. And they're going to do that within whatever rules exist. Mm-hmm. Well, if the rules allow them to pay their workers nothing, if the rules allow them to hire um, uh, migrant workers and pay them even less. If the rules allow all these things, if they're allowed to run increasing, uh, numbers of, of, of essential goods that people need and charge as much as they want for them, they're going to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's no coincidence that as wages have gone down, the stock market has been soaring. I mean, the one place in the economy that's doing really well is the stock market, even during COVID, even, you know, it just keeps going up Mm -hmm. and it keeps going up because it's much easier to make profits when you don't have to pay your workers, when you can take over water systems and schools, Mm -hmm. uh, when there's just very little restraint on what you can do to make a buck, including exploiting people, exploiting the environment, exploiting just about anything that can be exploited. Mm -hmm. So, Public policy is is really key here. Mm-hmm. And the problem, of course, is that public policy is very much driven by corporate money because they can fund elections and they can lobby and all of that. But that's where we have to do the work. Mm-hmm. It's not by asking corporations to be a little bit better and make yeah. their buildings a or little bit Mark Zuckerberg for having... Or attacking Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, what we need to do is look at the input and the output. We need to look at why it is that corporations are allowed to have the influence over governments that they do and what kind of policy we need to put in place to ensure that people's lives are better, Mm -hmm. that the environment's protected, and that we can all flourish to some extent, roughly equally, not perfectly equally, um, you know, on a planet that isn't going to burn up in the next 20 years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There have been reports saying that when polled, people said that their lives, this is in the U.S., not Canada, they're, sa- they're more satisfied with their lives than they were four years ago. It seems to be that there's this assumption that people are doing better. Uh, is, is there data to prove that or is that just opinions I haven't seen that data, so I'd be hesitant to uh, to comment on mm. it. I don't know if that's in the United States primarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the U.S., yeah. Yeah, I, I really, I, I would be hesitant to comment on that yeah. data. I mean, the data that I've seen from um, relative, that I, that I find really interesting is that when you go over various kinds of social issues like housing, like the environment, like uh, 
taxation, equality, mm-hmm. all these kinds of things, people um, tend to 60-70%, uh, typically more Democrats, but large numbers of Republicans tend to support social policies that advance social and environmental values. Mm-hmm. That That's the data I've seen that yeah. I'm interested in. I, I think those kind of surveys that are like, you know, are you more happy than you were I'd really have to see what question was being mm-hmm. asked and how. Absolutely, yeah. You mentioned taxes. One thing that I find really interesting that, you know, the Shapiro type often bring up is that they're, they're drowning in taxes. They're overburdened by taxes. How dare you, you know, basically tax us to death. The idea that corporations, many of them, can make trillions of dollars in profit and pay zero dollars in taxes, whether it's offshore havens or policy what do you say to that? Well, I'm 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 not in favor of that. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I think that it's it's crucial to have a fair tax system, and we don't by any stretch. And as we show in the film, the combination of offshore loopholes and cuts like Trump's in 2017 um, leads to a situation where some of the most wealthy and largest companies in the world are are paying absolutely no taxes, and it's mm-hmm. appalling. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no uh, no justification or rationale for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should be, and it needs to be changed. And, you know, it, 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 we, we do need to be cognizant of the tax burden on small businesses, mm-hmm. on people who work for a living. I mean, obviously, if you pay somebody 30000 a year and then you take 12000 of that in taxes, uh, that doesn't leave much to live on. Um, and in the meantime, Netflix pays zero taxes in yep. 2018. So it, it, is, it is absolutely, you know, upside down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have to be cognizant, you know, this, this idea that I don't need to pay taxes. I mean, do you drive on a road? Mm-hmm. Do you walk mm-hmm. on a sidewalk? Mm-hmm. You know, in Canada, do you uh, do you go to the doctor? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there there is this weird disconnect that I find when talking to people who are railing against taxes. They kind of take for granted the things that they get from taxes. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also the case that if you're paying a ton of taxes and it's all going to, to fighting wars and it's all going yeah. to ensuring that corporations have tax loopholes, you're paying a lot of taxes as a working person. Uh, the sidewalks have potholes in them. The roads have potholes on them. You know, that is going to create some resentment. To switch from taxes, uh, one of the most striking revelations in, in the documentary, and I won't give away too much because it's everyone I should watch it there is a fellow I think he was from SFU talking about tech so many people like myself I go I have nothing to hide they can you know hack my phone and look at everything until it comes to you know identity theft and all of that but one thing that this fellow said is corporations might eventually have the capability to do and some some already do have is algorithms that can look in a video interview and be able to tell whether you are the term was a change agent. They may not hire you based on this algorithm that isn't a person. Maybe talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think that one of the real um, problems with the discourse we have about uh, data mining, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we all know it happens. We all know that this conversation, if it goes online, is somehow going to end up somewhere in some data bank as metadata. Yeah. Um, and, and we say, well, I don't really care. I mean, you know, it's out there anyways. It's, it's, uh, and so we, we tend to think about um, the issue as an issue of privacy. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, well, then I don't, I'm not too concerned about my privacy because I'm not doing anything that I'm worried about yeah. people <laughs> seeing me doing or hearing me saying. Um, but I think that what the point we try to make in the film and I try to make in the book is, is that it's really not just about privacy. It's about control. Mm-hmm. And, and we haven't even seen the beginning of that. The, the real question is we know that they've been collecting all this data. The real question is what are they going to do with it? Mm-hmm. The question is, and oh, gee, they, they might be able to see what I'm up to. No, no. The question is, when they know what you're up to, what are they going to do with that? And how are, how's that going to bounce back on being able to control you? Mm-hmm. So the obvious example of, of, of that, and I talk about this more in the book, but it's the scanner that Amazon employees um, use. So okay. the, the scanner is not only scanning as they go around the warehouse and, and pick various items to be sent to you in an envelope. 
Um, it's not only doing that, and it's not only scanning uh, the delivery drivers uh, in terms of when they drop things off. It's actually measuring how long it takes them to get from one post to another, how many steps they're walking to get there, whether they stop for a bathroom break and, and therefore take time that they shouldn't be taking, whether they don't go fast enough, whether they're running because they're not allowed to run, but if they don't walk fast enough, they get penalized. So it becomes not just about their privacy, but it becomes a way to control them mm -hmm. because then they get disciplined if they're not going fast enough, if they're taking a break, if they just stop and go, oh my God, I'm exhausted because yeah. I've been running around for eight or or whatever. And and so so in real time, they are being controlled. And that becomes a way to actually get around labor standards and everything else. It just becomes this direct control between the employer and the employee. And more than that, it becomes a sense in the employee that they're always being watched. Mm -hmm. And that and that even so even if they're not being watched at that moment, they have to act as though they are being watched. Mm -hmm. And that's horrible. I mean yeah. that that is just disgusting. Mm -hmm. Um but that is just a microcosm of of where we're going. So the insurance yeah. company gets data from your car that you're driving too far fast and it turns your car off yeah, you know and yeah. and as opposed to having to go through all of the normal legal routes that an insurance company would have to go to in order to you know suspend your policy yeah. um so so that's the real concern and and there are things we can't even imagine mm -hmm. um that you know a, a worker um decides to stay home because she's not feeling well someday and and the employer actually gets the information that maybe they're feeling okay because their fridge is hooked into the internet of things and they keep going into the fridge and eating things yeah. and they say that they have a bit of a stomach virus so they're lying and then they mm -hmm. get into trouble i mean it's it's sort of big brother on steroids exactly. and and that is where we're going. I mean, because with the Internet of Things, with, with everything we're doing, driving, opening our fridge, everything's wired in, all that data is being collected. Um, that's the concern. Yeah. And, and I think we are really, and the, the example that comes up in, uh, in the film is a job interview where, uh, algorithm scans your facial expression while you're doing the job interview. And the algorithm concludes that you're not a trustworthy person or that you might, uh, mm -hmm. want to bring about change in the workplace. God forbid, maybe organize a union or something like that. And so you don't get the job. Yeah. Um, you know, so there are all of these, uh, ways in which, as I say, we are only at the beginning yeah. and the, the, you know, the, the way I describe it in the book is corporations are geared to make profit. Yeah. Now they have all this data. The question they're going to ask is how do we make money More. from this data? Yeah. And the obvious way to make money from the data is through behavioral control, mm -hmm. whether that's through we've seen targeted advertising, but that's just the beginning control of employees control social dilemma. That yeah. Um, and I think yeah. social dilemma um, does a really good job mm -hmm. at um, at laying this out. Probably it takes a deeper dive than we do yeah. because we're much uh, sort of looking at how all these issues fit. We're, oh, of course. we're kind of 33,000 feet up in the <laughs> air. Every company, they're doing one company. Yeah. <laughs> or, sorry, industry. One thing I did want to talk about. So, you know, when I grew up, it was a lot of Craig Kilberger, who started We Charity. He, he was the one who was doing all the rounds of the high school talks. My generation was very, we need to go help impoverished countries and bring them education and, and feed them. And all of this stuff that as I grew up, I realized is very imposing Western values on other countries. Something that corporations have really, really done is they have, you know, aside from go give children shoes, this idea that they can get this massive tax break by going and building schools, or even they can, you know, become a for-profit company by building schools and privatizing education that is westernized and it doesn't take into account the knowledge that their ancestors know about their land. I, again, it goes into privatized education, um, but it also goes into issues of this whole charity component of companies, if you want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, sure. There's, um, there's a concept called philanthrocapitalism, and it is an idea that is propagated by... Um, Bill Gates in particular as a kind of leading advocate of it. 
Um, but also uh, other well-known people like um, the Clintons. Bill Clinton is is a leading advocate of this. Uh, Paul Pullman of um, the former head of Unilever is a leading advocate. Uh, we have all these kinds of new capitalisms, creative capitalism. Bill Gates talks about inclusive capitalism. Paul Col- Pullman talks about connected capitalism, social capitalism, green capitalism, all of these kind of good capitalisms. And the basic point in my book about the new corporation is that what corporations are doing is making a play to run everything. And that this philanthrocapitalism piece is kind of combination of for-profit corporations with philanthropic and social entrepreneurial objectives is very much a part of that. It's a part of this idea that corporations can run things like, uh, you know, delivering uh, programs to deal with malnutrition and hunger in the developing world or delivering schooling in the global south. All of these things should be left to corporations Mm -hmm. rather than decolonization projects rather than trying to uh, even out the incredible inequality between the global north and the global south, rather than reversing uh, the idea that northern corporations should see the global south as a place to plunder and profit from. Mm. Uh, The idea is to plunder and profit more by now um, taking over things like public schooling mm-hmm. in Africa. And so in the film and in the book, we, we provide an example of that um, in the form of a, a company that Bill Gates has helped fund called Bridge International Academies, which um, is a for-profit um, operation that is... Uh, uh, basically competing with public school systems in Kenya and other African companies. In the book, I provide examples of, um, you know, Coca-Cola and Unilever and all these companies mounting these programs to deal with malnutrition by producing what are called nutraceutical drinks. So these are um, drinks that, you know, apparently have nutrients. And so, like, rather than dealing with hunger mm-hmm. by ensuring that people are properly fed and that we have economies in uh, poor countries that don't keep people in poverty and that mm-hmm. ensure proper food supplies. We have northern corporations selling products that apparently are substitutes for the food that people should have, yeah. Yeah. which just so happened to have such high sugar content that one of these nutraceutical drinks has twice the amount of sugar for a child yeah. um, than, than, the, than the World Health Organization recommends as being healthy. So wow. the whole thing, I mean, and but it's a perfect example, whether it's um, for-profit schools in Kenya or it's mm-hmm. nutraceuticals in India. India, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. This is the the corporate perspective yeah. on how you solve social problems. Yeah. You have to look at the social problem and say, not how can I solve it in and of itself, but how can I solve it in a way that makes profit for me? Yeah. Then there's also the example of Tom's, you buy a shoe here, a child in Africa gets a shoe. And then it was found out that it was actually undermining local artisan shoemakers and people who were able to make a living with, you know, selling shoes to to people. So the one thing that I thought is funny, my parents, they travel a lot. They always make this joke of over, you know, in the West, we work and we work and we work. We sit at a desk and we're behind a screen, you know, months and months just for that two week vacation. And then you go and you lay on the beach and you're enjoying local food and and the sun and swimming in the ocean. That's how they live. They live, you know, in some areas of the world, they live with respect to their land and they actually, you know, get to be outdoors and they they work hard for a living and they, but they have all of those things that science is now telling us is required to be happy is you have to be outdoors, you have to have community, you have to eat good food. So it is this funny thing of, well, they're just laying around in the sun all day, so let's make them work so that they can do it for two weeks of the year. It's kind of my parents' yeah, joke. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think there's an insight in that, and, and I mean, it's something that I get into more in the book, and, and both, though we do touch on it in the film, and that is, I mean, capitalism is not just an economic system, it's, it's a way of life. I mean, it's a teaching of how we should live and mm-hmm. and when you actually look at it as a teaching it's it's uh it's, it's a very deficient teaching yeah. in terms of who we are as human beings because mm-hmm. it says we're competitive primarily rather than cooperative it says yeah. we're individuals rather than social beings yeah. it says uh we 
try to consume as much as we can to basically target our pleasures, pleasure centers mm -hmm. as much as we can. Mm -hmm. When in fact, that may be part of who we are, but it's not all of who we are. Exactly. You know, it, it says that we don't have ties to one another. And, and importantly, it says we don't have responsibilities to the earth. We just, the earth is just there for us to exploit and take things out of, whether it's tomatoes or gold or, yeah whatever or mm -hmm. you know the stuff to make steel so so it is a very very uh you know if if you were to come down from mars and and sort of look side by side at the different teachings of how human beings are supposed to live uh and you put side by side sort of capitalist teachings with say uh indigenous cosmologies mm -hmm. about sort of our inherent obligation to to mother earth and all these things which 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 is an idea that seems to unite a lot of indigenous cultures across around the world yeah. Um, you know, if you put those side by side and, and sort of said to visitors from Mars or wherever, like, which do you think is the most sustainable approach here and, and, and the most likely to yield sort of happiness and solidarity among people and, and a decent life and thriving humanity? Um, the capitalist one would probably come out last place every time. Yeah, of course, yeah, especially in late stage neoliberal, unfettered capitalism. You know, but as you were mentioning earlier, it's kind of that difference between markets and uh, yeah. capitalism. Um, when people go, you know, you can't be against corporations when you have an iPhone or you know, I'm recording on a Mac laptop. The way that I look at it is, it's the same as my criticisms of capitalism. It's not that hey, we should get rid of it and all you know, be farming potatoes and wearing the same outfits. It's that this is a good system, we should be allowed to critique it and make it better. It's just those components that are a little bit malicious that we should be critiquing. It's not the platform, it's it's that. What's I mean, your yeah, I, I mean, I think there are a number of ways to approach that question. I think part of what we're critiquing or part of what, what, what I'm critiquing in the book and we're critiquing in the film is this um, kind of capitalism on steroids, uh, neoliberalism approach. As you know, as I've already said, I'm not against uh, markets necessarily. I think they can be a useful tool for organizing production. I'm not even against corporations necessarily. They can be a very useful tool for financing large enterprise. That's why they were invented and that's what they do best. Um, and that's what they do well. And, you know, so they have their places as tools. But we've got the ends and the means mixed up in our society. The end should always be what is best for the public good. And the public good means individuals' lives. I mean, yes, you know, we, a, a cell phone is arguably an improvement and mm -hmm. clean food and water and all of that stuff is good. And what is best for society as a whole and what collective interests need to be dealt with, like climate and environment that aren't just about individuals, but that we need to address collectively mm -hmm. through policy. So we need to deal with all that stuff. But, you know, the, the irony or some would say hypocrisy of putting this film up on Google Play and Apple uh, TV and and in saying this, I'm telling people where they can watch it. Um, Telus, Bell Media, um, Shaw, Rogers, you know. Um, it, here's the thing. I mean, I could have stayed in the university and been very pure and published my articles in uh, sort of nonprofit, you know, uh, journals that uh, five other people read mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and basically, you know, not go out into the world, yeah. uh, not fall from grace, yeah. uh, not have the sort of Adam and Eve, you know, yeah. fall. <laughs> um, but I did. I fell. So I fell into doing work that would reach public audiences, large audiences, uh, audiences across the world. You know, the, the books are translated into lots of languages. The film is the only way I can do that is is by relying on corporate media to carry my message. Why? Because we live in a world where the corporation is so thoroughly dominant mm -hmm. that it dominates that as well. It dominates even the channels through which it's criticized. But if I'm going to do it, that's the only way I can do it. Mm -hmm. So my decision is either do it that way or go home and mm -hmm. stay in the university and, you know, write my articles in learned journals mm -hmm. um, that even some of those are now being taken over in our for profit. Yeah. But um, and so, you know, so I've made a choice and it's 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 not comfortable. 
it's always uncomfortable and it should be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it's Gandhi basically to get to his rallies, uh, when he was, um, uh, leading the, uh, the uprising against, uh, British imperialism, he took British rail because British Rail had a monopoly on the railroads in India mm -hmm. in the same way that Facebook, Google, Apple have a monopoly on communications in, uh, in, in, in our world. Yeah. Um, you know, Martin Luther King drove a Ford to his rallies. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and I'm not comparing myself to these people, <laughs> but I'm just saying when you are criticizing a system yeah. that is so thoroughly dominant that it's literally inescapable. Yeah. You can't escape it even when you're criticizing mm -hmm. it. You, mm -hmm. you, you need to rely on it. Mm -hmm. And, and so I would say, you know, that's an argument for, I, I mean, the, the very fact that we need to rely on Sony cameras, we need to rely on Apple, we need to rely on Bell Media to mm -hmm. fund us. Um, I should say by, while we're talking about this, that we're very lucky in Canada that we actually have a very strong public infrastructure for funding films. This this film yeah. is funded primarily through public dollars, through awesome. agencies like uh, the Canada Media Fund and Telefilm Canada and all of all of these agencies mm -hmm. that make it possible in Canada to actually have films publicly funded. Uh, we have a CBC in Canada. So we do make an effort uh, more than say in the United States to um, to socialize the production of knowledge to put it in um, somewhat fancy terms. But, um, but it, but it remains the case that if you want to, uh, you know, if, if you want to dance the dance of talking to large audiences, mm -hmm. you have to use the channels that get to them. And those happen to be run by corporations. Yeah. And that just adds to back to the initial point of you work within a system to change a system. So, you know, people can hate politics, but seeing progressives in politics is, you know, and we are lucky that we live in a country that we can criticize government, Absolutely. you know, on government media. And we need to, we need to counter blessings every day yeah. that, 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 that we can do this kind of work and, mm -hmm. and not end up in jail and, and that it's actually welcomed and supported yeah. and seen as important. I mean, there's the old, you dismantle the master's house by using the master's tools and all of that. And, yeah. and I think, you know, as we've discussed, this isn't about some kind of massive dismantling. This is about getting, getting the balance right, mm -hmm. stopping the planet from careening into crises of democracy, of climate, of racial and economic injustice, mm -hmm. and creating a decent world. It's not about completely uprooting the economy as it currently is. Yeah. But if I can end on the note that we really need to think when we talk about capitalism, we really need to think about whether we want our ism to be the production of capital. And can't we think of, you know, again, democratism with a place possibly for corporations, a place for markets, but not a world in which those values of corporations and markets are the primary values mm -hmm. and everything else has to be means towards those ends. That's upside down. Absolutely. We have talked about where they can see the film. They should also buy the book because the book goes into way more. Books are always better than movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can go into more detail. And, and to, to find out information about both the book and the film, you can just go to joelbacken.com and there are links to the film site and, and where you can get the book awesome. and all kinds of stuff. Very cool. And to the Corporation has a website as well and it Instagram. Does. I've. It's got all you, kinds of stuff that I don't even know how to use. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. But but it but yeah, uh the new corporation dot movie. Awesome. Well thank you for chatting. I have a million more questions I could <laughs> ask, but uh but yeah, we've got lots of fun stuff and everyone should see the film and thank you so much. Thank you for having me on.